Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm, and today we're going to take another look at the ongoing controversy around the origin of COVID, focusing on two major new developments. Now, if you feel lost in all the claims and the counterclaims flying around in what has become a highly politicized and tribal debate, I'd recommend scrolling back in the feed to our May 6th, 2022 episode on the Lab Leak, which I genuinely think is the best podcast summary of it you're going to find. It's an interview with three journalists who've been tracking the issue closely. Today, we're going to be talking to a fourth, Jimmy Tobias, who has a new piece in The Intercept that adds valuable context to what we know about how the U.S. government responded to the question of COVID's origin. Jimmy, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. And so of the two developments I referred to, one is his major new piece, which you can find over at The Intercept, and it's not that long, and I encourage people to read it if they can. The other is the release by the administration of a four-page declassified set of assessments related mostly to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That declassification was a belated effort by the administration to comply with a law passed by Congress mandating the disclosure. It was a quite short and clear law, so rather than describe it, I'll just read you the relevant part. Quote, not later than 90 days after the date of the enactment of this act, the Director of National Intelligence shall declassify any and all information relating to potential links between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the origin of COVID-19, including activities performed by the Wuhan Institute of Virology with or on behalf of the People's Liberation Army. Coronavirus research or other related activities performed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology prior to the outbreak of COVID-19 and researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who fell ill in autumn 2019, including for any such researcher, they want the researcher's name, the researcher's symptoms, the date of the onset of the researcher's symptoms, the researcher's role at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, whether the researcher was involved with or exposed to coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, whether the researcher visited a hospital while they were ill, and a description of any other actions taken by the researcher that may suggest that they were experiencing a serious illness at the time, and submit to Congress an unclassified report that contains all of the information described under paragraph one, and only such redactions as the director determines necessary to protect sources and methods. So, Jimmy, that's basically the law that was passed recently, mm-hmm. and which led to, like I said, a belated uh, four-page report. I think it's about a week overdue. Uh, first of all, to help set the conversation up, can you talk a little bit about this new declassified report and why there's so much interest in the health of these lab workers? Yeah, I mean, you know, for for 90 days now, if not more, people have been eagerly awaiting the release of this report in the hope that it might shed light on what happened in Wuhan, whether indeed there were sick workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, during the initial days of the COVID-19 outbreak, um, and, and, you know, whether the Chinese military was involved at the lab. And, you know, I think when it came out, the 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 main standout thing for me is that 
there was no underlying documentation released with this report as required by the law. I mean, this was this was a summary by ODNI more or less of of the various views in the intelligence community about the origin of COVID, but there was no evidence, there was no underlying evidence, no documentation for the public to scrutinize. And, you know, because of that, the report received a very negative reaction from the law's sponsor, Josh Hawley, and its co-sponsor, Mike Braun, both senators. They sent a scathing letter to ODNI over the weekend calling the report paltry, noting its violation of the law, and demanding that um, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, actually produce the underlying intelligence on COVID origins, which she failed to do. And so it'll be really interesting to see whether ODNI responds to that. You know, they basically, and I quote, said, try again. <laughs> yeah. And this was a law that was passed by a Democratic controlled Senate. Uh, it was signed by a Democratic president. And I just read the law. It says any and all information, you know, if lawmakers or if the administration had issue with that, they, they had an opportunity to veto it, to vote against it. Uh, instead, they they voted it through. And compared to the requirement for, quote, any and all information, I'll read quickly from the Intel report about the illnesses. They This is from the ODNI report. They say, quote, while several WIV researchers fell mildly ill in fall 2019, they experienced a range of symptoms consistent with colds or allergies with accompanying symptoms typically not associated with COVID-19. And some of them were confirmed to have been sick with other illnesses unrelated to COVID-19. While some of these researchers had historically conducted research into animal respiratory viruses, we are unable to confirm if any of them handled live viruses in the work they performed prior to falling ill. And so this comes after uh, the Wall Street Journal confirmed reporting uh, by uh, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger on Substack that named the three researchers who had allegedly fall, fallen ill. What's, what's your sense of uh, how much more the intelligence community uh, knows? And why do you think we wound up with just this very vague, okay, yes, the rumors that some people were sick were true, but some people had some things that were not consistent with COVID? Yeah, like, frankly, I don't know how much the intelligence community knows. I mean, obviously, the Department of Energy and the FBI have both assessed that they think it's most likely that the virus came from a lab. Four other intelligence community agencies think it came out from nature. And the CIA and another agency, you know, haven't made a determination because there's conflicting evidence. I think, you know, for me as a reporter, it's just it's hard to take a report like this and know what to do with it without seeing any underlying documentation. Again, I mean, that's really what I'm stressing. Like, mm -hmm. we need to be able to assess this for ourselves because as a skeptic of the government, I, it's just hard to take what they say at face value without being able to, you know, assess it or analyze it for oneself. And so I think that's the real failure of, of this report, that there is no evidence put out there. And until we get that evidence, it's really hard to assess the claims of this report and to really determine whether those workers were sick how sick they were, what their symptoms were, when and if they went to the hospital. You know, it's just, it's really difficult to know. Um, and, you know, I'll also note that the report was sort of filled with circumspect language and and hedging. And and so, you know, you kind of, it's kind of like reading tea leaves, and that's exactly what's happened. People on the natural origin side of the debate, you know, have read it to support their claims. Some people on the lab leak side of the debate have sort of read it to support their claims. And so, you know, we need the evidence. 
And the other rather jarring line in that statute for people not following this closely might be the reference to the People's Liberation Army. And I think when you start talking about bioweapons and the Chinese military and COVID, you start to lose people who think you're off in conspiracy land. But there it is in the statute requesting information. And I have this here. Here's what the declassified report said, quote, although the WIV is independent of the People's Liberation Army, the IC assesses that WIV personnel have worked with scientists associated with the PLA on public health related research and collaborated on biosafety and biosecurity projects. Information available to the IC, the intelligence community, indicates that some of the research conducted by the PLA and the WIV included work with several viruses, including coronaviruses, but no known viruses that could plausibly be a progenitor of SARS-CoV-2. And the reason I wanted to quote from this report is that in the public conversation over the past few days, it's being bandied about, as you said, as evidence that the lab leak theory has now been thoroughly debunked. The LA Times ran a column asserting that it exposed the lab leak as a, quote, lie. And I'm just not convinced that the people making those claims read this very short report. You know, it it certainly doesn't provide any conclusive evidence that it originated in a lab. But the idea that it rules it out is just not true. No. Now, I'll admit that I've had a hard time covering this issue and not being driven mad by all the misinformation and obfuscation and all the accusations that if you're curious about this question, you must be some crypto right winger. So what's it been like for you? Like, how do you sift through all the noise in your own reporting? Yeah, there's no question this debate has been very bitter, very toxic. It's really it's, it's like it's unlike anything I've ever reported on, for sure. You know, for me, I try not to engage in the ad hominem stuff, try not to reply to the nasty comments. You know, I, I know what my values are. And, and the main thing I'm trying to do is get documents from the government and present them to readers that can shed light on what happened around this question throughout the pandemic. And so really, I've tried just to stick to the documents, get documents via FOIA and FOIA lawsuits, you know, put them in context and provide them to readers. And I think when, when you use documents to write a story, people can't say, oh, that's not true, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the documents are right there in their face. And so I think that's that strategy has has served me relatively well. And I mean, it's not like I've avoided heat from some of the more vitriolic participants in this debate, but but it has sort of made the reporting strong and defensible. And and that's what journalism is about, in my view. And that brings us to your latest story, which is based on a, a new ream of documents that you've gotten. And I'll, I'll just read the, the top of it and ask you to talk a little bit about you know how you how you obtain these documents and what what you learn from them. But you write a top advisor to Anthony Fauci at the National Institutes of Health admitted that he used a personal email account in an apparent effort to evade the strictures of the Freedom of Information Act, according to records obtained by congressional investigators probing the origin of COVID-19. The official also expressed his intention to delete emails in order to avoid media scrutiny. And you're talking here about uh, David Morenz, a high-ranking NIH official, uh, deputy to Anthony Fauci in a September 2021 email exchange with a number of the most kind of uh, vocal advocates of the of the kind of nature uh, theory of origins. So can you tell us a little bit about who, who Morenz is and, and why this is relevant? Yeah, Morenz is a 25-year veteran of NIH who serves as a, a senior scientific advisor to the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which was a position that Anthony Fauci held 
for many years until his retirement late last year. And the, these documents were, as I say in the story, were obtained by congressional investigators on the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I, from what I understand, they were obtained from records uh, in the possession of Dr. Robert Gary who, of Tulane University. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm a reporter who uses FOIA as a tool a lot. And so it was pretty shocking to see this very high-ranking government official basically saying that he uses a personal email account. Um, I'll quote, he says, as you know, in his email to these scientists, I try to always communicate on Gmail because my NIH email is FOIA'd constantly. And later, he says that his Gmail was hacked, so he had to use his government account. He says, don't worry, just send to any of my addresses and I will delete anything I don't want to see in the New York Times. And when I talked to <laughs> ethics and public transparency experts about this, they were very disturbed. Um, they, they, they couldn't believe that a government official would put something like this in writing. And the first thing that occurs to you if, is if somebody has a consciousness of what they're doing here, that they are specifically avoiding their government email so that it does not later become public and turn up in the New York Times or The Intercept, you would think that they would not write that in a government email. It wasn't. It was, it was, this was an email sent on his Gmail account it, it, to this oh, group. To Robert Gary. Yeah. To, probably to Robert Gary. And so then it got obtained through yes. other eyes. Through the investigation. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think this person intended that for this to be um, made public, obviously. <laughs> Makes me feel a little better about Dr. Morenz's aptitude there. Uh, <laughs> although it's still not a great thing to put in writing. Uh, no. Because it, anything you put in writing, no matter where you put it, uh, might wind up in the pages of, of the New York Times. Um, but can you talk about who was on this email exchange? Because if this is just uh, he's emailing with other soccer dads in the neighborhood, then it's like, okay, fine. Right. I, under, I understand why you don't want your communications about the upcoming you know, eight-year-old birthday party to be right. you know, turn up in The Intercept. But who was he talking to in these exchanges? Yeah, th these were September 2021 email exchanges with um, Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance, Robert Gary of Tulane, Edward Holmes, uh, Christian Anderson, and Angela Ramusen. These are all um, leading scientists who have been very vocal advocates in favor of the natural origin theory. Um, several of them are, were authors of the Proximal Origin paper, which The Intercept has covered at length. Can you explain what that is real quickly for people who haven't been sure formed. the proximal origin paper was a paper published in march 2020 that really threw cold water on the idea that the virus could have come from a lab it you know it basically said that although it didn't entirely rule out a lab leak it, it said that you know it wasn't plausible and i'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. um and, and that paper kind of grew out of these confidential discussions that occurred in february 2020 between this group of scientists anthony fauci francis collins and others where initially in these conversations, there was deep concern that the virus looked potentially engineered, looked like it may have um, come out of a lab, perhaps of experiments, but then that the group pretty quickly changed its, its views and came to determine and said in the paper that the, actually a lab leak is, is not plausible. And the paper was incredibly influential, you know, it was viewed more than 5 million times online covered in all sorts of news articles. Francis Collins wrote about it on the NIH website. Dr. Fauci mentioned it from the White House podium. Um, it really kind of set the narrative, I'd say, in many regards um, about the origin of COVID debate. And these, 
you know, confidential discussions didn't really come to light until years later via FOIA requests, including my own. And, and so, yeah, the paper has, has been the, has been the subject of a lot of controversy since then. And in fact, um, the house committee investigating COVID origins is holding a hearing on it on July 11th. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. September 2021 is a key moment as well. Can you put this this conversation that's going on between these scientists and uh, and Fauci's deputy in in context of what was happening in fall of 2021? As it regards to this, yeah, and, and perhaps you could weigh in on this too, because you you obviously were involved. I, you know, this was when the Intercept published um, several articles, I believe, about the kinds of experiments that were going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, NIH funding related to those experiments, and so this email thread in, in this email thread with Dr. Morenz of NIH and these scientists, um, they're they're kind of bitterly complaining about the Intercept's coverage. Um, harshly criticizing lab leak um, proponents, I guess you could call them, and and also sort of laying out their own arguments in favor of natural origin uh, for the virus. And so um, this discussion in which Morenz wrote this email about FOIA was part of a broader conversation about COVID origins, media coverage, and things like that. And so to see all these folks all in communication with each other um, about this, uh, and then to see this top official saying, that he's using his personal email account in an apparent effort to evade FOIA and that he's also expressed his intention to delete emails is is certainly concerning, to say the least. Yeah, and it's interesting to read through uh, those emails, you know, knowing what the backstory was. And for people who didn't follow it, we had filed a freedom of information request for basically the grant documents that uh, EcoHealth Alliance, you know, that underlied EcoHealth Alliance's work with Wuhan eventually sued as 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 you know, Jimmy, you basically can't get anything nowadays through FOIA without suing. We sued and eventually were able to uh, get get these documents. Uh, Sharon Lerner and Mara Fistendahl did some great great reporting on those. Although if you if you read through the uh, the chain, uh, 
their, their fans are not in, in, that, in those no. emails. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of criticism there. But also a lot of criticism of the many, many virologists who were quoted in, in those articles. And you see them talking about these virologists and saying, boy, like some of these, I really respect some of these virologists and I'm really disappointed, you know, that, that they went on record to say that what we were doing in this research was either risky or qualifies as, as gain of function research. And then as you read through the emails that you've you've reported on here more, you start to see, and I'm curious for your take on this, as you read through them, you start to see Peter Dajak increasingly make admissions to this other group of scientists that I wonder if from their perspective started to become concerning. You know, at the, at the beginning of the emails, they're saying, you know, there, there's absolutely nothing to any of these claims that we did any gain of function research. And then toward the end of the, the chain, you see him saying, well, okay, the intercept is going to have some information that we did do some research that found a significant, you know, one log gain of function but we don't believe that that qualifies because, and he has you know reasons for why he thinks it doesn't qualify. But I, I wonder if, as you're reading through that, you're like, hmm, I wonder if there was some there was some collar tugging going on, even among these kind of vocal advocates of the zoonosis theory. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't want to speculate on sort of their thoughts, um, it, and it, you know, in general, in this debate, one of the ways I've sort of stayed out of trouble is to just try to put the documents out there yeah, point. Um, and let people interpret them as they will. And so I am very interested to see how people, how people interpret these when, when we release them. But, you know, from my perspective and really the focus of the article is on Morens and transparency issues, because, you know, as a reporter who believes in FOIA and believes that the public has a right to know what his government is doing it's very disturbing to see that kind of commentary from a top official and and as with the the confidential discussions around proximal origin this is again another instance where the same group of scientists or some of the same group of scientists is in conversation with a top NIH official discussing this topic behind closed doors more or less and so that's a pattern that i find notable but yeah you know i think I, I'm I'm awaiting uh, the public's interpretation of 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 the other contents of this email thread, which we didn't really get into in the story. And the level of uh, vitriol, I think, is notable too. You have uh, one quote from uh, Dr. Morenz. He says, "Do not rule out suing these assholes for slander." And he says, "They need to be called out because I am in government. I can only do this off the record, but I have done so again and again. Some of them are knowingly promoting false equivalencies. If they interviewed a Holocaust survivor, they would say they have to give equal time and space to a Nazi murderer. They have no shame, unquote. Mm. Does not sound like somebody who is exploring with an open mind the origin of the pandemic. What, What was your reaction to some of that language? Yeah, I mean, any when you see a government official encouraging others to sue their their sort of, I guess you could call them political opponents, that raises red flags <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and likening, I mean, you know, deploying uh, the Nazi thing in context of lab leakers is is also. I mean, I think it speaks to like the totally entrenched positions and bitterness and vitriol that has come to take over this debate for some reason. But yeah, I mean, I think this does not look make the NIH look very good. 
And I think, you know, the, the subcommittee has, uh, is sending a letter to Morenz and they're going to ask for his documents from his email, from his phone, and they're going to ask him for a, a transcribed interview. And I think, you know, we will eventually learn more about what's going on here. I mean, what did he, did he delete emails that he claimed he was going to delete? Was this a regular pattern um, where he used personal email to evade FOIA? You know, it, is this part of the agency culture at NIH? You know, those are questions that are in my mind. And speaking of the NIH, the other interesting recent development um, was that the, the subcommittee that you're talking about got confirmation that the agency has actually debarred Wuhan Institute of Virology from getting future U.S. funding. What do you make of that that move by NIH, given the kind of resistance to explore some of the questions around what happened there? Yeah, my understanding is that the subcommittee learned that NIH has referred the Wuhan Institute of Virology for debarment. Okay. So I think there's Which probably a different process still to play out. Right. I, Right. Yeah, yeah, but but basically, and this is um, a fact I think people have have lost sight of a little. Back in January, the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services released a report um, that found that since late 2021, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has not been responsive to NIH and EcoHealth Alliance requests to provide lab notebook entries and electronic files that uh, could offer insight into the nature of the federally funded experiments performed at the lab. So, so you know, just consider that. The U.S. government gives fun- money to Wuhan Institute of Virology to conduct experiments, but when it then asks for documentation related to that, it gets stonewalled. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's it, that's a pretty astounding fact that, that somehow isn't highlighted in this debate much lately. Um, but because of that, the inspector general suggested, recommended that NIH consider referring the Institute to the Department of Health and Human Services for debarment, which means it would be blocked from receiving funding in the future. And it, and the agency seems to have done just that, according, according to the committee. Yeah, and it, it's a frustrating situation, too, because we as journalists are looking for evidence that we can then follow to a conclusion. And, and the conclusion may not be what uh, the lab leakers want. It may not be what the natural origin people want, but there does appear to be evidence that the U.S. government is trying to get from Wuhan, uh, but is is failing to do so. Like what what else as you as you continue reporting on this remains outstanding that that you're hopeful could still uh, become public. Yeah, there's there's these records at the WIV. There's the underlying documentation of the ODNI report. You know, people have a million FOIA requests out. It took a year plus of FOIA litigation to get the conversations, you know, that led to the proximal origin paper. I mean, I personally would really like to see what DOE has on this question, since they are, you know, a very highly regarded scientific agency with a lot of expertise. You know, what do they have? What does the FBI have? Why does that lead them to believe that this was a lab leak? What do the other agency have that make them feel otherwise? Like we need to, we need to see the evidence, and it's gonna take. You know, after seeing what ODNI released last week, um, it's clear that it's gonna take further congressional action and or a lot of FOIA lawsuits to get the kind of information that might shed light one way or the other. But I mean, it's a, it's something the public deserves to know. You know, we deserve to see what's going on here instead of just getting um, brief summaries and hedging from these federal agencies. And there's this hearing scheduled for July 11th with a lot of the people that are on this on this email chain. 
what's your sense of what might be learned from that? And do you think, do you have any reporting on whether or not those scientists intend to appear? I, I, I don't know yet. I think that's an open question whether they're going to appear. Um, you know, it's only the U.S.-based proximal origin authors who, who were asked to come, or who, at least who, who will likely come. I mean, my hope is that the hearing doesn't, you know, explode into theatrics and the like. I mean, it'd really be nice to hear from these scientists and, and hear, you know, they've done a lot of media interviews, but rarely with um, people asking hard questions. And, I, and so I think it'd be really nice to hear them respond to some hard questions in an open forum. But I, I don't know if they'll accept. Um, and if they don't accept, I don't know whether subpoenas will follow, but I will definitely be watching and, and likely reporting on it. Well, Jimmy, ter- uh, terrific work, and uh, thanks so much for joining me here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And that was Jimmy Tobias, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music was composed by Mark Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. Go ahead and rate any episode that you want, even if you rated one already. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>